Welcome to episode 24 of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Michelle Miscali, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. And I'm Kristen Hahn, Farm Exec's Associate Editor. For those of you joining us for the first time, Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. So, Kristen, what are we talking about on this episode? Today we're talking to Editor-in-Chief Lisa Henderson and European Editor Julian Upton about the industry trends we feature in January's issue of PharmaSec. The trends really look at all of 2019, so it's a really good overview of the things that we're going to be talking about for the whole year. We'll get into the trends right after this break. Are you on LinkedIn? If so, you should join the Pharmaceutical Executive Group and connect with over 16,000 of your pharma and biotech colleagues in everyday discussions about the industry. Just search Pharmaceutical Executive on your LinkedIn group page and request to be added. Hey there, podcasters. Today we have our team on with us to talk about the industry trends for the upcoming year. So we're speaking with our editor-in-chief, Lisa Henderson, and European editor, Julian Upton. Welcome. Hi. How are you? It's Lisa. Hi, there. Hi, Julian. Hi. So we each took um, some different topics, and I wanted to first, Lisa, maybe you could talk a little bit briefly about how we came up with these topics, just to give our listeners an idea. Yeah, so um, we usually, uh, at the end of the year, do and. A, uh, a large conference call with our editorial advisory board, and we do them throughout the year, but this one specifically is around, you know, figuring out the trends. Now, we have a large board, and there's a lot of trends, so um, it wasn't actually one conference call because that would have been crazy. It was three separate ones, but we did come up with a pretty uh, robust list, and then we narrow we would we narrowed it down. We kind of grouped together similar trends and finally narrowed it down to eight. Um, and there were a lot. I think we had a list of at least 20. There was a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I wrote in my editorial was that even if the trends didn't make um, 2019, it didn't mean that the other ones we chose, they're definitely there. You know, they're going to be up and coming. And I think one of that is the bifurcation of pharma, which is um, the growth of um, services around your blockbuster drugs, for lack of a better term, and, you know, whatever we say about blockbusters. But, you know, your diabetes, your heart disease, that has a lot of ancillary technologies, digital health that you can put around that patient support and then you have your rare diseases where it could be the first time a therapy is even available in the population. I don't think they necessarily need that high-touch visual health um, patient support in, in the way we traditionally think of patient support, obviously. But um, uh, services are splitting. You know, there is no one-size-fits-all for pharma anymore. I think that's what that was. That's obviously just going to continue so we did not choose that for 2019. Um, we chose ones that we thought were really going to hit this year. You know, and uh, so there we go. That's how we chose our eight. 
So of the ones that we, so we did, we all split up, the whole staff split up those eight. So of the ones, Julian, of the ones that you worked on, what would you say is the most interesting trend that you saw and the most well, interesting topic? Yeah, I, I chose to um, uh, and agreed to work on Brexit and uh, AI. And um, <clears throat> those are being, living in Britain, um, Brexit is one of the terms that I you know, hear several times every day. And working for PharmaExec, AI is a term I hear <laughs> several times every day. You know, so I, I think those two, those two topics couldn't be avoided, really, rather than you know, saying this is what you've got to look out for in 2019. Of course, AI has been with us uh, a long time as a subject. And um, you, know, <clears throat> you know as well as, as, as me, uh, Michelle, and everybody will know that it's a hot topic at, at, at conferences, and sometimes it's talked about a lot, with, and not much is actually said or done. So um, I thought that was interesting to look into, and um, especially given the fact that, um, that, that I talk about, a, I mentioned rather, a September um, 2018 Frost and Sullivan report, which uh, says that uh, AI and cognitive computing will generate savings of over $150 billion <clears throat> for the healthcare industry by 2025. But with that in mind, the report also said only 15 to 20 percent of end users have actively been using AI to use real change in the way healthcare is uh, delivered. So I, I talked to a, a couple of experts in this field just to see where pharma is, you know. Um, and I think it emerges that, you know, the next year, certainly the next couple of years, is going to be key for harnessing those capabilities, those AI capabilities, um, data, big data analytics, data gathering, things like that. Um, and uh, one of the person, one of the people I talked to, Mark Lambrecht, um, he, he says it's, uh, it, you know, he sees more realism coming along from companies now who, who, who've started establishing in-house capabilities, data warehouses, things like that. Maybe, maybe, maybe they started doing that two, three years ago. Now it's getting to the point where it's maturing, where they're, you know, there's an understanding of the techniques, there's an understanding of the questions that need to be asked of big data, you know, and the application of AI. Um, but there's there's still there's still a, a way to go. Um, you know, uh, another person I talked to who didn't actually make the article, but I'm hoping to run an interview with him called uh, Jean uh, Drouin, who from, who's from Clarify Health, uh, says that we're not yet at the stage where you know people in pharma have become expert, you know, assessors, um, evaluators, and buyers of what truly adds value in terms of AI. Um, so it, it, it's it's a question um, of still making a kind of cultural change in companies, you know, um, embedding AI, big data, data analytics as, as a strategy across, uh, across the whole company. And that's going to require, I think one thing to say is that the technology is advancing all the time, but, you know, the cultural change thing, that, takes, that could take a long time. I completely agree with you on that. And I, so my article, one of mine was about digital therapeutics and digital health. And that's exactly what I found as well. The cultural change is what's really going to be the problem or has been posing the problem. Um, yeah. And part of it, I think, is because, or at least what I've learned, is that no one really knows what it all means. Everyone wants to jump on the bandwagon, but what does it all mean? What is a digital therapeutic versus digital health? And digital health can mean so many different things. So you can say... Yeah, we're using AI in our pharmaceutical company or in our biotech, but 
you could have 10 people in the room that all say that, and every single person would have a different definition of that and a different way of using it. And that's what I've at least found so fascinating with my article. I don't know if you found the same thing. Well, and also the big companies can afford to um, throw money at hiring all these young uh, AI uh, and data experts. Um, and if you look at um, the, the thing we just ran with um, Novartis, um, that's uh, about um, – it was Novartis, wasn't it? Let me just double-check uh, – about them hiring uh, a lot of um, new people to come and head up their, their whole um, transformation to um, – uh, what they call, you know, uh, well, a digital company. Uh, and they can, um, you know, a big company can afford to do that. Um, I'm just double-checking that I've actually got that right. Is it, was Nova, it was Novartis, Nova, of course, yeah. And they, they hired some really big people from outside the industry to steer their their, their transformation to to what you, like, what you might call a digital a digital uh, uh, science company. But um, when I spoke to somebody last month called Kin Ye of uh, ZS Associates, you know, he said, well... You know, it's not always the answer. Just uh, I'm not saying the artists have done this, but it's not the answer just to um, just to just to just to take on new young people. They've got to really be integrated into the whole farmer operation, you know, or else there'll be some sort of division. You can't just bring new mentality and expect it to mesh with the old. So that that just reiterates that this this cultural change still needs to to take place in in many big companies. Uh, one thing Mark Lambrecht, who's from SAS, uh, said. One thing he said to me was that he sees more, seeing a bit more innovation among the smaller companies, uh, the smaller pharma companies and the biotechs, who don't have the money to, you know, invest in all this, um, in creating in-house capabilities, uh, and, and of course may may often be using external uh, consultants to, to deal with their AI data issues. So he sees more innovation, more preparedness on their part to actually automate when it comes to analysing data, you know. And and uh, and and really try and apply AI in the best way to get the the meaningful signals from the data, the meaningful the value from the data. Um, but I think I think there's a bit of optimism um, about how how companies are going to get a grip of AI um, next year. And I just want to add because I haven't actually given any examples of, of what, what we mean uh, by by AI. But one thing that Mark Lambrecht brought up, which I'd never thought about before, was streaming analytics from real time data. Which is, uh, and if you look at things like video data, and I actually thought that video, as as you're receiving video, you know, you're getting data from it immediately. I never really thought of it like that, but of course that is where we're at. And he used an example of um, of a surgeon doing operation and uh, on video, and, and then data from that operation or the, the outcomes, or whatever, or the, or the events from that operation being analysed by AI as it's happening. Which is all pretty complicated stuff, I think, uh, and that's obviously a medicine, exa- a medical example. But uh, you know, applying that to clinical trials, mon- monitoring trials in real time, um, marketing, particularly real time analysis of the kind of um, reaction response you're getting to uh, a drug or a campaign on- online or on social media, uh, rather than you know gathering this data and looking at it much later, uh, but actually real time streaming analytics of you know, immediate instant data uh, is something to to look at, um, to think about this year. So, I mean, that's, there's, there's probably, you know, thousands of other things we could talk about in terms of AI, the application of AI, but of course none of it means anything unless the companies, uh, companies really uh, affect this this uh, cultural change, really, and, and adopt them. No, I, it's, 
we didn't plan this, and it's interesting that you mentioned about the developers because I was at the CBI conference on digital therapeutics in December, and that actually came up. And one of the gentlemen who's quoted in my article, he said, you know, digital therapeutics is a sector that he hopes will become sexy enough that they will want to work in digital therapeutics and not wonder why they're going to work for a drug company. So it is a completely cultural shift for some of these new um, software developers, and they are trying to hire them out. One of the things in my article as well that I found really interesting that I brought back to the team after the CBI conference was they're pulling people in from MedTech um, and yeah. from med device companies because pharmaceutical companies obviously are know how to get a drug or a compound or a therapeutic approved by the FDA, but a lot of these AI data software um, programs, therapeutics are not they're, – they're software, so they're actually considered a device, and it's a completely different yeah. – of the FDA, so I think that that was pretty interesting. Well, it's too. a different thing. I mean, I, you know, talking about digital therapeutics, digital therapeutics and uh, big data, uh, the analysis of it are, are two different things, of course. I mean, you, you've got um, are you are you a com- is your company developing digital therapeutics, or are you just using AI, big data to to uh, improve your existing pipeline, you know, or to, to develop your existing pipeline? So. You know, yeah, there's different facets to it. And uh, I haven't really touched on digital therapeutics. I know we didn't uh, touch on it in a big way in, uh, last year, and obviously it's something to look at this year. But um, talking about bringing people in from outside, um, well, you know, Novartis brought in uh, uh, their top uh, digital guy from, um, from uh, you know, from retail, uh, UK uh, retailer Sainsbury's and Argos, where he'd uh, – he, he transformed the digital the company's offering from a catalog business to uh, to a, a multi-channel sort of online business. So that's you know, and, and then other people came. What somebody came has come in from IBM Watson to uh, to Novartis, and um, you know they're, they're taking this they're taking these people from certainly from different areas. And, and it, you, you look to places like bank industries like banking and um, uh, and things like that where a lot of a lot of advanced stuff has been being done for for years. And I think this is going to start to to affect pharma, you know, at a strategy level in terms of the hiring and things. I think that's interesting, and I wanted to ask Lisa. Um, so I wanted to find out it was interesting when Julian was talking about the pharma companies bringing in people who are not traditional pharma backgrounds. I mean, they're bringing in a retail guy to into a pharma company. Have you ever seen that in any other area of of pharma or clinical trials or anything like that, where they're bringing in these people from outside that don't have traditional pharma backgrounds? No, no, not at all. Not at all, because it's really uncanny. I mean, when you look at the career trajectory, um, you know, from most, from many of the executives that we used to interview and still interview, they have a long history of working their way up, and there's a clear path of how they get to the C-suite, you know, and it involves moving a lot, you know, going to different countries and this and that. But regardless, there's literally nothing. I mean, there's even a thing in clinical trials where um, a CRA can't get a job, like, unless they have two years' experience. Well, that is a complete disconnect. How are you supposed to get two years' experience just you know, straight out of the you don't. You know, so it just makes no sense that they want somebody constantly yeah. experienced. So, yeah, this is, it's. I mean, clearly it's a good idea. You bring a lot of um, 
ideas and expertise and apply it to a very specific industry and problem. I mean, and I will just say, though, I think sometimes people can get carried away with how much they think they can do in this regulatory <laughs> environment. I think they look at I it agree. and think it's a yeah. big deal. It is a big deal. And yeah, I think that's part of maybe a challenge for farmer in getting some of these people, especially these the, the, the hottest data scientists, you know, luring them away from Google to pharma, uh, you know, and, and then presenting them with a lot of these obstacles and regulatory uh, hurdles that they that they can't yeah. um, that they can't avoid. M- maybe that's a problem. I, I don't know. But then again, the farmer has got the um, the advantage of saying, well, look, you're helping to save lives. You know, what do you want to do? Do you want to <laughs> do you want to come and help us uh, do this, or, or or do you want to stay in banking? You know, I mean, uh, so it's, it kind of cuts both ways, I suppose. The challenge accepted, right? Yeah. It's an interesting. It's it's like kind of an interesting career path, like you mentioned. It's it's not normal our normal C-suite executives in pharma. So that's going to be interesting, I think, to see how that progresses and kind of watch that, mm-hmm. kind of watch that path. So tell us, Lisa, some of, uh, what did you find most interesting on the articles that you worked on for these trends? So I worked on the vertical integration of payers, PBMs, and specialty pharma, and the growth, actually the tipping point of your smaller pharma companies so I'm just going to jump in on the PBM one first, only because um, there are people that watch this space like every day and write about it. I am not one of those people. Obviously, <laughs> we all are well aware of the issues around, you know, what we're talking about is the Cigna and Express scripts and the Aetna CDS and how that affects the pharma supply chain. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts on this side. And we spoke to an expert over at Informa, and she regularly um, writes about this. And, you know, she said the actual um, integrations aren't money makers. They haven't really increased lives, covered lives for their companies. It's not like that's the impact. They, it, it is a bigger picture impact. So that's one thing to look at. And it's only going to continue into this year. One of the, I forget which one, um, isn't fully approved and it's not going to be fully vetted um, through the Justice Department until June this year. They extended it um, into June 2019. So it's a long process of getting these mergers approved. So, you know, because of the anti... Antitrust. Yeah, antitrust. So, um, but the other thing that's interesting that I think is going to come out of this is that we're at the end of the year, both of the PBM side came out with new plans for their formulary. They really don't want pharma exhibiting any type of control in pricing at all, right? So, and pharma, of course, has a huge lobbying and education effort around um, supply chain. So, and they did have made it pretty clear, you know. Goes into my fight for the pharma article yeah, as well. Yeah. So that trend, yeah. They've made it pretty clear, you know. We have a vested interest. We spend a lot of money making drugs and developing them and taking risk and everyone's got their hand in our pocket, you know, but PBMs are shooting back with their own PR movement with, well, we're going to do this 
and we're going to contain the drug. We have a new plan. So that's going to be interesting. It's going to be um, a fight for public perception, really, I think, as we can move forward. Um, and then the other one is, um, you know, Big Pharma, their approvals last year, the drugs, and I forget which the actual numbers are, but it's tipped over now that um, most of the drugs that were approved are from companies that have never had an FDA approval before. So clearly, this changes a lot of things. It changes, well, we've already written how, you know, large pharma has a presence in most of our biotech hubs. You know, they don't want to miss out on any innovations. They have a lot of relationships in the Cambridges, you know, in um, San Fran. You know, they, they have relationships down south everywhere. Yeah. They don't want to miss anything, and they want to be there so that they can take that compound to the uh, to the public. You know, most of these smaller companies don't have those resources, but clearly they're t they're getting them approved and they're moving. So then that opens up your whole services provider industry for this group of people. So we're seeing a big, I mean, just on our sales side. You know, just to be honest, a lot a big push or providing services for, um, they're calling it emerging biopharma. I don't know if that's the right term, but, you know, whatever. I don't make these decisions about what you call it. <laughs> I will say, <laughs> though. I don't think anyone actually <laughs> understands. So I would like, tell you that the number Don't call it an SME, though. <laughs> and they do. And I'm like, that's just confusing. Don't call it an SME. We've been talking about that for over a year. I know. It's not a small to medium yeah. enterprise. SME stands for subject matter expert. Yeah. yeah. So please don't. But anyway, that's just my own. It's kind of interesting you mentioned the supply chain because one of the things that um, came up was how Google, there's always a headline that Google and Amazon, they're all getting into the healthcare space and everyone's freaking out. So what we did is we actually kind of dug a little bit deeper and was like, okay, what is actually the impact for a pharmaceutical executive in a C-suite? So I went around and asked a bunch of experts that exact question. And of course, like pretty much everything else, the answer was, yeah, they should be concerned, but no, they shouldn't be concerned. And it was sort of this middle ground. Um, but it all comes out to the supply chain, um, that fight for the pharmacy. Amazon and Google and Apple, that they're really going after the consumer and they're going after the pharmacy, which obviously a pharmaceutical company doesn't really have to be worried about the actual pharmacy, but they still kind of do because that's the endpoint of where they're therapy is going. So that was an interesting sort of um, conversation to have with people and look into as well, where it's sort of on the fringes. So they still need to be aware of what's going on, but they don't have to be immediately concerned that, you know, Google's going to come in and create a therapy. So that was supply chain, I think. I think as we kind of go back to your point in the beginning, as we start looking at 2019 and 2020 and just the future of pharma, we're going to have to start looking at those sort of fringe areas. And for an executive, it's not just going to be anymore about the medicine or the therapy or the compound or leading their company. It's going to have to be, they're going to have to know about a lot more things that are going on in the industry and have their hand involved, I think, in a lot more things that are happening around the industry and surrounding it. I would agree with that. 
This seems like a really great place to wrap up, but I'm sure that we're going to remain talking about it more as the uh, upcoming months unfold. So thank you so much, Lisa and Julian, for joining us today. And if you want to read more about all of what we've just, if you want to read more about what we just talked about, you can visit farmexec.com and read about all eight of the trends that we wrote about. And now it's time for this week's leadership tip from Pharma Execs. Hey, this is Jack Bailey, um, president of GlaxoSmithKline for the U.S. And my leadership tip would be the golden rule. Uh, as, as, as trite as it sounds, I have found that uh, living by the golden rule as a leader is absolutely imperative. Uh, it has enabled, I think, trusting relationships to be built, uh, respect to be garnered both ways, and ultimately the potential of, of our teams to be uh, maximized. So think about the golden rule, um, treating others the way you want to be treated is, is, has served me well over my many decades in the life sciences industry. for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, or on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com. <laughs>